Thank you all for checking this episode out. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to the website lastbornofthewilderness.com. A link to that website is in the description of this episode. Down in the description, as well as on the website, you'll find links to all the various social media sites that this podcast is updated regularly on. You'll also find links to all the platforms that this podcast streams from. So if any of those are your preferred uh, places to listen to podcasts, please subscribe. If you can leave a review or share from there, please do. And if you want to support this project, there are one-time donation pages. There's the coffee page and the PayPal link in the description. But you can support this project through the Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. There you can make very small contributions. It'll be a monthly contribution. You can do as little as a dollar a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to the interviews and conversations before the official public release. This is always going to be freely available. Every interview that I do, every conversation I have, it's always going to be for the public. Uh, the Patreon page is really just a way to thank people who are supporting me. Um, but to those that are that have decided to throw a few dollars at me every month, I mean, that's... Thank you so much. Uh, this, this podcast takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes a lot of thought. And it takes a lot of energy, honestly, to produce these things. More than I actually anticipated starting out. I thank those that are willing to throw that money at me and and uh, to those out there that are considering doing it, it's really easy. You can do so through that Patreon page link, and you can get started there. So thank you so much for your patience up to this point. Here's the episode. this episode, I speak with John Zerzan. John Zerzan is a very well-known writer, very well-known critic of what we would call civilization and technology. He is a anarcho-primitivist. He is the the anarcho-primitivist. He is one of the most well-known primitivist writers out there. He has really cultivated a deep well of, of thought, of theory, of examination and critique when it comes to discussing the roots of human civilization and technology. Now, in this particular conversation, we discuss his very short book. It's, it's a collection of three essays. It's called Time and Time Again. That was my initial starting point, I guess I could say, for this conversation was to discuss the three essays, the collection of essays that's in this book. It was published by a really great book publisher, and, and I've been, I think I've bought like two of their books at this point, but there's several others, others that I want to get in the future. Uh, the publisher is Detritus Books, and I'll provide a link to that publisher down below and a link to this book. But it's, it's three essays that John Zerzan had written from... The first essay was written in the mid-'80s, and the second and third were written up to the more present time that we are in. I think the last one was written in 2017, but he has revisited this idea of time, right? And I think we have this underlying, very underlying, this underlying assumption that time is just something that has always existed, that we've always assumed to have existed, 
and that we have structured much of our lives around it because it just makes sense to. Um, Something that we discussed at the very beginning, at least, and this conversation is very wide, we get into a lot of different subjects regarding his work um, in this conversation. It's hard to really narrow it down to just one subject, but to speak more broadly, it's about civilization and some of the things that come with having a civilization. But when we talk about time, we, we assume that there's always been this measurement of time, that we've always had days and weeks and months and years, and we've measured these things. And really, this is a rather recent concept. For a majority of our existence as a species on this planet, we have been without agriculture. We have been without the concept of time. We have been without much of the things that we take for granted to be a, to be a part of the human experience. And so to imagine what it would be like to live within an environment, within a culture that doesn't value the measurement of time, you know, that is such an, I mean, just, just try to imagine what it would be to feel that way, to not have that thing following you, this, this time, this concept of time looming over everything. It's really interesting to think about. And so having John write these essays and and to have it released in this collection. I mean, it was really touching on something that I think we all have felt, which is, I mean, maybe when we were children, we felt this, but I think as adults, we become more domesticated and we become conditioned to think that this is just the way it is. But to, to sort of question the underlying assumptions that we have about time and civilization and a lot of the structures that are imposed upon us, to question the, ver- the, the very complex systems that we are a part of and that we fit within and, and whether or not those are actually serving human interests and not just human interests, but the interests of every other living thing on this planet. Something that many other writers have pointed to and John Zerzan points to, of course, is that our civilization is a massive burden on the, le- the life systems of this planet. And we need to sort of shake this thing off in order to get our bearings again and to find our right role within the broader systems of this planet, of the biosphere. And so his critique, like I mentioned, it's just, it goes right to the core of the problem. It goes right to the deep point of where this all began. Now, I have my own views and opinions about this, and um, I, I don't always know where to land when it comes to the subject of technology and civilization and, and all of these concepts, but I can definitely recognize the value of what John is asserting and what he's pointing to in his work. So this conversation, like I said, it's, it's, it's wide. We get into a lot of different subjects, but it starts off with this, this subject of time. I think if, if you are really at all, even remotely interested in, in this idea, you should check out that book time and time again, you could buy it for, I think like $10 or less at that publisher's website. And, and uh, he's also has another book that he's published this year called A People's History of Civilization, which is a, a little bigger uh, collection of essays that he has written about civilization. So I'll provide links to both of those books in the description of this episode. And I will also provide a link to his website, johnzerzan.net. Everything you would ever want to know about him, all of his speeches, his uh, interviews, his essays and books, everything is on that. He's also the host of a weekly radio show. I think it's titled Anarchy Radio uh, that uh, I think he, he does in Eugene, Oregon, where he's from, where he lives, I should say. And... Um, I'll provide a link to that uh, that radio show, which is released online as well. I'll provide a link to that on the uh, in the description of this episode. So 
I just want to thank John for this really engaging conversation. I hope that we can do this again sometime in the future. And uh, I really hope that you all enjoy this episode with John. So thank you all for your attention up to this point. Here's my conversation with John Zerzan. Well, John, I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. And, you know, in part, it was because of the Ben Etherington um, interview that I had uh, with him and then his essay that he had written. But a, a lot of it also is just the fact that I've been reading your work for several years, and um, I recently picked. <clears throat> I should have probably told you this before we started, but I, I, I'm, su- I'm suffering from a cold right now, so I'm, I apologize for any like gross congestion like sounds that are going to come across. I'll do my best to uh, avoid coughing into the microphone too much or anything like that. But your sure. your book, um, time and time again, is really the the thing I wanted to discuss because I know you have another book, which is a people's history of civilization um am i correct that's their name of it right yeah people's history yeah, of civilization. Yeah. it's much longer than the little uh time uh book or booklet yeah but i think that that subject of time that you have re- that you visited over and over again i mean that that book covers i think from you their first essay is from the mid 80s and then the last essay was just last year that you had written that um so I think it's just a really fascinating concept. And, and I think by delving into this concept of time, we can kind of understand um, the things that we take for granted that civilization has sort of hoisted upon us, right? Like we don't, we don't always acknowledge the sort of peculiar state that we are in um, that civilization has created for, I guess we've created with civilization. Um, and I think this, this concept of time um, is is extremely fascinating to me. And so I wanted to discuss that, at least at the very beginning, and then see where we go from there. Okay, yeah, it's it's just really intriguing to me. And as you notice, I've returned to it. It's, uh, it's an amazing puzzle in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, it isn't. I mean, it's to me, it's really the same thing. Time consciousness and, and alienation, they're, one is a measure of the other. It, it just happens to be the case, I think, and it's historically it's it's easy to see. I believe you know that's it's it's related to to the machine. It's related to discipline, and you know there was a time when it uh, really probably didn't even exist the consciousness of of something that we label time, and now it stands over us. It's totally a materiality. And uh, a really oppressive dimension, and and it uh, you can see the course of it, you can see the history of it. It's not that hard to to see, as for example, E. P. Thompson, in his classic uh, "The Making of the English Working Class," talks about the discipline of the factory, the industrial time, and that you know people obey the time of the machine. They they have to be domesticated to that. They have to lose any independence from that. Basically, you know, and so there it is. You, you just see it developing, getting stronger, and uh, and then we. But at the same time, as as I know you've noticed, it's uh, it's very elusive in terms of the real definition. And I always think of that classic Saint Augustine uh, quote. I know perfectly well what that word means until somebody asked me to say what it is. And <laughs> speech, you know, it's it's that sort of a thing. Or Einstein, you know, he said, uh, what is that? What is time? And, and he said, it's what a clock measures. 
And, you know, think that's really interesting. You know, you think about that a little. That's really all it is. Yeah. You know, that's a machine that and what you what it's what it's computing is time. But that still doesn't answer the question. No, you know, and it's uh, it's kind of like this funny thing. I, it's, it's, it's basically a meme at this point. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a it's a photo of a protest sign. And it's like, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. It's this idea that like, I always thought it was a strange thing that we have this thing called the week, right? The days of the week, we have Sunday through Saturday or Monday through uh, Sunday. And, and, and every day of the week has its own quality to it or anxiety attached to it. <clears throat> and a lot of it, of course, is tied to work. You know, we hate Mondays because that's the day you go back to work. And in the weekend, of course, is the day that you have to, I mean, ideally, uh, I, I've worked many jobs where we don't have weekends, you know, you don't have Saturday and Sunday off. But traditionally, uh, I guess for however long we've had this sort of setup, um, a lot of people get their weekends off and that gives them time to spend with their family or whatever and and then get recouped so they can go back to the grind again. And if you think about it, that's such a strange arrangement that we've set up for ourselves, this idea that there is this thing called the week and that that informs our feelings and anxieties and behaviors throughout the uh, the course of our life. And we're tied to it and it's looming over us our entire existence and and it's not natural in the least. It's a completely artificial thing, but everybody agrees to it. Everybody acts as if it's real. And so you just sort of go along with it. And I feel like that's a bit like what time in a bigger sense is. It's this thing that is imposed on us. And what I really liked about the essays that you've written about this subject is is how it's not just about capitalism. It's not just about making efficient uh, workers in the age of capital, time and the uh, this this standardization of time or whatever, however you want to say it, um, that was emerging in I guess I guess it wouldn't have been just Europe, but uh, I imagine it's emerged in some form or another. I mean, we could look at the Mayans and their calendar um, as a good example of this as well. But time as a concept and as a way of measuring, I guess the moment to moment days of our lives uh, um that's been around for how long i mean when did you and your research begin to really see this force emerge in human history well i stumbled into that i was uh, kind of originally working on uh the question of unionism um that's that's another story but it it, it moved to uh early Early industrialism, the, the textile factories in England, the very first, uh, you know, factory system uh, deal in the West, and uh, and you see the time is a, uh, it corresponds to the machine, it corresponds to the speed of the of the machinery, and you can look at all the different the basic social institutions, you know, it's all tied together. It's not arbitrary. Of course, it, it varies from culture to culture. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, non-industrial ones at first, but uh, the more time-obsessed civilizations, you know, the more more degraded people are, the more estranged they are from the natural world. I mean, just virtually everything. But, and it's right there in in, uh, the sense of time. And, you know, all the way to the point where 
uh, people don't really seem to have any sense of it. Well, they're the most free. They're, they're not fettered to technology or agriculture or, you know, getting back to the hunter-gatherer thing. And I was thinking about your conversation with Ben Etherington. These things are not, uh, they, they come from somewhere. They're grounded in something. And you see the progress of these of these institutions and how, uh, how the time is there. It's their time and uh, it, it moves right along with all the rest of it. And, you know, it's all very, really pretty recent in the West. You know, it's that's uh, the idea, for example, of even hours, not to mention minutes and seconds. That's quite a recent thing. People didn't, they didn't get down to that level of stuff until pretty recently, really. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> what does time in the clock, right? The function of a clock who who does it serve cuz obviously people seem to be you know there's moments through history where we've seen resistance to it but you know what i find really fast and this ties into civilization itself but what is it serving i mean obviously we seem to be you know any any sort of examination into what time does to us it, it makes us more anxious it makes us more aware of I guess you could say the shortness of life, right? We become aware of death all the more because we feel like life is like a ticking clock. Like I only have so many days or years or, or whatever left of my life. Um, I, I just, I, I just find it so strange how human beings have <clears throat> taken the paths that we have taken and that we have adopted modes of living and, and modes of thinking and, and modes of consciousness that ultimately yeah, they seem to not really serve us in a lot of ways. You know, like like you've pointed to over and over again. Uh, if anything, uh, time and civilization itself has made us more alienated, more isolated, more anxious. We have more neuroses uh, than ever before. Um, our societies are seem to become increasingly more fragmented um, as time goes on. And I, I find it really fascinating that we would have taken this path to begin with because it doesn't seem like it's actually benefiting anybody or anything, except, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you, like, where did this function of civilization come from? And what do you think it's serving, ultimately? Well, I think it has to do with the most basic uh, of social institutions, starting with division of labor, specialization, in other words. And that's, you know, anthropologically, it's pretty clear that was a very, very, very slow moving thing. Uh, when especially when you consider that it's probably uh, it's probably an orthodox idea that homo species was as intelligent as we are uh, maybe a million years ago, maybe longer than that. So it's not a question of intelligence, but as, as the thing evolves, you, you start to get certain gradations of authority when you start moving toward specialists who have an effective power over other people, even if they don't, you know, use it very politically or whatever, like shamans. And, in the, you know, there's ethnology on that, that that shows in some cases it was very, very powerful political, if you want to use that word, uh, thing. You know, they had life and death power over people, possibly the first specialists. And, and that, in, in various ways that grows the, the growth of division of labor and you, you and I think people if, if it moves so slowly and everything in society probably moves right along with it how can you be very aware of it especially if 
if you haven't experienced it before culturally, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? So, and I think what gradually happens is finally, slowly again, slowly, uh, you get to the point of domestication. And that's the great leap forward or backward, I would put it, but, you know, a quantum leap of estrangement where you, you set the stage for the shift to control, to, you know, the domination of nature, the domination, the domestication of animals and plants. And, uh, that's, that's really the, that's the turning point of, uh, unbelievable significance. I think everything changes with that. Absolutely everything. Now, as opposed to pre-domestication, you know, what's set in motion is the systematic destruction of the natural world, uh, overpopulation. I mean, one thing, war. I mean, it, it all begins there. And uh, patriarchy, there's, there's really nothing that isn't, uh, you know, comes to pass via that. It's You can't really see anything else. I mean, that sounds reductive, but there it is. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid that. And, you know, and you see, back to the painful part of it, uh, you know, an extremely radical text, and you've probably come across this one before, Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. And it really should be domestication and its discontents, although neither title is the original German, which is more like the discontented culture in the German. But anyway, you know, he basically says, we don't, we don't get over domestication. We're, we're domesticated right along with everything else. And, uh, uh, it's a pain that doesn't passes. Some species seem to adjust to it. And, you know, you break a horse, you tame a horse or whatever. And, uh, it isn't always as far as we know, maybe it is, but you know, it isn't made miserable by that. But he said, that's what neurosis is. It's a machine for creating unhappiness. I mean, that's extremely primitivist, uh, thing. I mean, that's an amazing text to me. It's, you could just, you don't need Solon's and all the rest of it uh, in a way because it's all there. There's some other stuff in there too, but I mean, the main thrust of it is is that, and I think that's valid. And and you know, you get down to the choice of civilization or not. I mean, you know, the punchline one would think is, so we got to scrap this. We got to undo the domestication and the civilization, or else people will never be happy. They'll just be more and more neurosis. But, you know, he he was a good citizen, and he said, yeah, it's horrible. It's it's really uh, an amazing trap. But after all, you've got to have the glories of symbolic culture, right? Literature, art, music, everything. Well, no, you don't. I mean, <laughs> not necessarily. The The other answer is more plausible. Maybe it's maybe it's kind of unthinkable as to how we pull it off, but it's right there. You know, it's it's really, he's giving you the, the, the answer to the test, but, but he doesn't, he's not going to go there. That would be way too, uh, explicitly radical. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for, for him. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that is a really good point because you, your critique of civilization is, I mean, that is about as deep as it can get. I mean, you can be like Marx and critic, be critical of capitalism or you can be, um, you know, you can be critical of industrial civilization or industrial capitalism. You can go, you know, down the line, but you're you're critiquing symbolic. Uh, what I'm trying to say here, some like the sort of emergence of something like language or or civilization itself, right? That is a that is that runs so deep and it's so ubiquitous in almost every human being's life on this planet. Um, 
that to try to like again that must be the hardest part of all this because there doesn't seem in my in my opinion there doesn't really seem to be a solution to this um i think that's what i think ben etherington is sort of pointing to um you know i know you two have have disagreements and i and i and i kind of get both of your perspectives on this that's why i like to speak to so many different kinds of people on this show because i think everybody has really valuable perspectives um but the thing that he was sort of pointing to is like this this idyllic place that existed before uh civilization which can be represented in like biblical stories like um you know the garden of eden sure right? this idea that we have this nostalgia that there is this thing that we had before the fall the fall right and yeah. once the fall you know it could be it could be something like the rise of symbolic uh uh, of symbolism or it could be the rise of agriculture and the work and the toil and the misery that comes with being a part of an agricultural society. Um, and once you go there, it's really hard to go back. And I think especially now that we are in this phase in our civilization, it's a global civilization. It's, it's highly, uh, you know, it's saturated in, in uh, information uh, technology you know, where instant we can I can instantaneously connect and understand what's going on around the world all the time. It creates all kinds of strange problems in the human psychology. But I don't know, unless there's an absolute complete collapse of this this whole structure, which seems inevitable anyway, but to try to scrap all of it and say that let's go back to this primitive state, it seems really maybe and I want to discuss this, but it seems at least on the surface to be a very impractical objective especially when you have as many people on the planet as we have now and we have so thoroughly altered the environments and ecosystems of this planet it, it, i just wanted to ask like when you get into that deep critique of civilization how do you reconcile with the way things are as they are today well we can see we can see where it all uh, is ending up you know it's it's more obvious to more people all the time that's why etherington said this uh, primitive thing is is in the air. He tries to make it sound like it's somehow cyclical. I wasn't quite following that, but anyway, <laughs> but it's always been there. This has always haunted civilization for good reason. It's not going away. And as things get spectacularly worse, you know, it begins to think one begins to think, uh, there's gotta be something different. There's in, if you, if you connect the dots and see what's driving it, then, uh, yeah, maybe impossible it may not happen. There may be, uh, you know, it's too much a challenge, but, you know, that doesn't, I mean, you still have to try it if you, if you do reach those conclusions, if you do see what, where it's going, uh, how it all works, uh, there it is, you know, it's, and, you know, what I really, I think this is, one thing that sort of disgusts me, quite frankly, is this noble savage thing. That's, I'm not saying Etherington so much, but that's always trotted out as a sneer, as a scornful, oh, that's just this old noble savage shit. You know, that's that really is weak. I mean, that comes from Rousseau, of course, right? And he was talking about that he was talking he was saying that the true nature of people is is uh, pre agriculture. You know, he he was very clear about that. You don't you don't have to mix it all up. So so I guess, well, Rousseau, you just reject all that too, but I just find that kind of a silly, uh, kind of a postmodern way of dodging what's right in front of us. I mean, I just don't think, and you know, what I usually think of when that, when that comes up 
is I don't really know what noble is meant completely. Well, I mean, I know it's romanticized, rhapsodized, you know, over-exaggerated, how wonderful it was, all that stuff. But yeah, you know, I get that general idea, but I don't, I don't know, you know, you can't generalize about any group of people all that, all that, uh, well, or legitimately. But on the other hand, I may not know what noble fully means, but I know what ignoble means. Here's the ignoble hitting us in the face. It's just getting so disastrous in every sphere on every level. Look at mass society in this country, for example, right now, the mass shootings, the opioid crisis, the suicide rates that are rising. Does anybody could even imagine this as a healthy society going in a healthy direction? No, that would be madness. But, but oh, well, we can't do anything about it, you know. Oh, you're right, all that's true, but, but you know, I heard this guy in Turkey say, yes, yes, I agree, I, I find no fault in the reasoning or anything, the evidence, but uh, you might as well argue against the sun coming up. In other words, you just have, and this, and we get this from all sides, the fatalism, the, the, the defeat, you just, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Well, <laughs> that's, that's such a cop-out, that's a complete betrayal of intellect and ethics, in my view, you just... Um, and you see it all over the place, man. Sherry Turkle is one of my favorites. Speaking of the technology again for the moment, you know, she's written this book. She's at MIT and she writes about child psychology and technology. And, uh, oh, it's, it's amazing stuff. It really, you read it and you're just appalled. It's just way worse than you even imagine in every way. Attention span disappears among kids and 50 other things. It's just her own daughter. She was saying, doesn't even really understand the difference between animate and the machine. I mean, just staggering shit. But at the end of her books, it, end of her books or at the end of her talk, it's always the same. I saw it just this week, the latest thing. Well, and I remember she gave a talk at the University of Oregon here, and I, I said, uh, well, some no. The question was, at the end of her talk, she more or less said, oh well, you know, what can you do? And I, I don't usually, you know, get up in big crowds and try to speak, but I said, you know, that's really, that's craven and bankrupt, and I find it really repellent. You're giving us this heartfelt, thorough critique, and then, oh well, that that just that doesn't cut it. No, I I think that that what you've pointed to, and and this is something that we do see in, <clears throat> uh, that we see in sort of pre-agricultural society. Well. It exists after agriculture, of course, um, but I think especially as we move into the age of capital and as capitalism has become the dominating um, form of social organization and economic organization on this planet, communities disappear. Um, and when you're talking about, like, there are people that are literally babysitting their children with uh, iPhones and uh, tablets, right? I mean, I see it all the time. And like you had mentioned, it's, it's so much worse than I think people can even get their head around. Um, they can't even, um, they, they don't really recognize how, how that's setting their, their children up for a really difficult time in life. Um, and, 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 you know, you talk about school shootings, you talk about the opioid crisis, you talk about all these crises and, and the mental health issues that are emerging in this, this society right now. Um, it really does come down to a lack of community. 
um, the optimal conditions for children um, can be for for ra- raising children in childhood um, development can be observed in in really tight knit uh, communities and the prime example of that being hunter gatherer cultures. Um, they've done I, I I've researched some anthropologists that have seen and have observed. Um, I think I had an interview with somebody last year named Darsha Narvice. She's a professor out of Notre Dame, if I remember correctly, but she's a childhood psychologist. But she she has observed um, what the optimal conditions are for children to develop in. And hunter-gatherer societies are the like the perfect place for children. They have multiple adults that are taking care of them. There oftentimes isn't this patriarchal uh, structure. So what that oftentimes, what I understand it to mean and what I've, what I've sort of figured out is that they don't really have this idea of like a father, like there obviously is a father, but generally speaking, they don't attach the same authority or uh, power, I guess, to a male figure in that setting. You know, of course there's the mother and then there's all of the other women that take care of the child and the men take care of the child as well, but there's never this like dominating patriarchal figure in the scene. And I think as communities have dissolved over however many generations, um, we've seen the role of the family come into play, like the idea that the tribe is now the family. But that obviously isn't working. (laughs) Families are really dysfunctional right now. Um, My family is one of those uh, very dysfunctional things. And and in fact, I was thinking a lot about this because... um, So I I have a relative who is dealing with some pretty serious mental health issues and it's getting worse. And I was having a really hard time with my mother. I was trying to talk to her. I'm like, we don't have any resources available to us to help. We don't have the, there's no, there's no funding where we're at. There's no uh, facilities available for that. You know, we as a family are incapable of providing that care uh, for this person but that is exactly what this person needs. This person, the exact thing that I was discussing with her is how this person needs somebody around to help them because they just need somebody to communicate with them and to, to bond with them. And um, I see this happening all over the, I mean, in almost every family and in every group that I come into contact with in my day-to-day life, I, I just meet increasingly neurotic and dysfunctional people. And it's, it's like if you take your head out of the water, you know, you put your head above everything and you look around and you say, something's really fucked up around here. <laughs> you know, like, why, why is this, the, this is not normal. I mean, it is normal, but it shouldn't be normal. You know, this shouldn't be the existence that we have here. I mean, we're just anxiety ridden, you know, exhausted, sick people. And, and we're just trying to keep this machine going. And I don't think we even understand what we're doing in that process. And, and what I love about your work is, you I mean, you get to the deep, um, deeper elements of it, but you you make it relatable so people can kind of like, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, I've never thought about how weird it is that we have clocks everywhere, you know? Like, what does a clock really mean? What is a calendar? Um, wh- who is that actually serving? And, uh, you know, and then, and, then you, and then the other thing that I want to say, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling here. No, um, not at all. <clears throat> but the, um, the thing that I find really fascinating is trying to imagine what it would be like to live and grow up without any concept of like a calendar or a clock or hours or seconds. Like what would life feel like 
what what, what kind of what's the nature of of that consciousness of that form of experience um i i, I wonder about that all the time so it, anyway i just those are just some random jumbled thoughts <laughs> but i i think that's kind of a lot of the things that i think about when i when i read your work oh i see yeah yeah that's so uh, foremost to me it's just uh it's just banging on the door you know in effect and i couldn't agree with you more patrick about community it's it really does come down to that and in mass society the as you point out vis-a-vis your family i mean you can't be accountable or responsible you just have to rely on all these specialists and institutions community is gone it just is that's just a word now it just that's why all these pathological things keep developing and they're not going away because i mean it would be nice if they do but uh, insofar as there's no community, everything is up for grabs. People have no stake in anything. They're just cut off. They have nothing to hold on to. You know, it seems to be such a mystery, this this, this mass shootings, which really only began uh, in effect uh, since the late 90s, and now it's just virtually every day. And so, you know, it's such a mystery. It, it's just amazing how much the denial uh, is enforced you know, for example, in in that case, uh, well, the the more left leaning people say it's about guns. It's all about guns. Too many guns. And then the more right wing uh, people tend to say it's mental health. It's mental health. Well, neither of those things are anything but superficialities. You know, for one thing, there were guns in the household since colonial times. Okay, I mean that's just that doesn't. And and the, in in the other respect, mental health. Uh, there have been people disabled with emotional illness for a while now but they didn't go out and just murder you know scores of people did they so there goes the mental health argument that that it's it's really it's quite spurious you I, i'm beginning to see a little bit of a change though there's a little bit more tolerance for uh asking deeper questions I, i'm beginning to see that uh we do this journal i'm one of five editors of black and green review and uh, I was working on an editorial about that, that there is more, seemingly more connection, more interest in, in, uh, in, in, maybe in part, you know, you and I having this discussion, you know, but, uh, and or uh, Ben Etherington's piece, he's saying, yeah, this is, this is in the air now. And, well, it better be. I mean, I'm not saying we know exactly what to do. We got no blueprint. As anarchists, we don't want a blueprint. But it's not too hard to see what direction we should be going in, trying to get somewhere uh in terms of what used to hold things together and what did what was wonderful for children and and the things you mentioned you know it's everything it's hard to see something it's hard to even find anything that it's it's looking good as we go down the road and people you would think what kind of life do you want for your kids even five years from now you know how much worse it's going to be in only five years it's it's kind of I mean, I hope that's not so, but uh, everything points to that. So there you go. It's it's time to uh, it's time to get serious. And but there's so much, you know. And one other thing on that thing, I think this is pertinent, and that's the whole ideological glue that whole things holds things together. And it's my view that the political paradigm, the political claims and promises are really pretty damn dead. I mean, nobody believes this stuff anymore. You know, 
the American dream and the more abstract ones, all the way from enlightenment, all these promises, things are going to get so much better with science and technology and superstition will go away and all these other things. But uh, that hasn't come to pass. Uh, it hasn't come to pass whatsoever. And so what I think is happening more and more is that technology is speaking now. It's the one that says we're going to fix it. Yeah, our problems, but we're going to uh, just around the corner. We'll figure out everything from the horrendous state of every big city on the planet, really, to anything else you want to think of, cancer, and so forth. Uh, it really has stepped into the thing, and everybody wants to believe that you know things might be okay, might turn around and and get fixed or something. But it's just such a stupendous uh, ensemble of lies, and, and that. Because most basically, and I won't go on and on and on about this, but all of these problems, they come from technology in a general sense. Every one of them is created by technology, but the answer is always more technology. It's it's incredible. But, you know, what do people have to try to hold on to or put some faith into? It's, it's, a, it's ridiculous, but, you know, uh, we all have uh, some desire to see things work out and everything even though if you look at the basis of it you can't you you don't get to have those illusions anymore right yeah well i was thinking about this idea of um <clears throat> so you know you're talking about technology and how people have this this idea this, this sort of general sense that, like oh somebody's going to figure out these problems for us right there'll be engineers that are going to figure out the climate crisis or the ecological crisis or or, you know, whatever, you know, the economy is going to, you know, we might have some more, uh, you know, uh, uh, economic crashes or something, but we'll fix it and it'll get, you know, every, there's always this sense that there's people in charge. There's somebody that's going to figure this out or some kind of technology is going to be created to fix the problems for us. And I think that what being a part of a mass society, and I think this has been going on before, you know, these crazy crises that we're seeing today. Um, probably saw this back in the, you know, during the end of the Roman Empire or whatever. Um, this, this absolving of responsibility, like we, we as human beings feel that somebody's going to take care of it, that there are these systems in place that are going to fix these problems or, or engineer a way out of these problems. And I think that if you exist in a smaller community of people, <clears throat> where you feel like you're an integral member of this community, Nobody feels, nobody shirks their responsibilities. And if they do, there are certain societal almost mechanisms in place to help people come back into their proper role. Um, uh -huh. Right. And so I, I feel like that's kind of what's happening is, is now we're just sleepwalking our way into, I mean, a potential, I think, extinction event. I mean, it could be climate change, it could be nuclear uh, war, or it could, you know, I mean, right now there's a massive hurricane that is about to hit North and South Carolina um, here in the United States. And there are nuclear power plants in the way of this thing. And people are like, oh, well, you know, there's engineers that'll take care of this problem. Like, it was a dumb decision in the first place to put those there. Um, but, you know, this is kind of the, the crazy situation that we've gotten ourselves into because we've absolved ourselves of responsibility. And we think that there's some adult that's or some you know organization or something that's going to take care of it for us and i think that's one of like the major really obvious dangers that i see is yeah this this absolving of of 
individual responsibility that I think could have been taken care of if we existed in small um, communities. Yeah. Right. Right. We wouldn't have created these hazardous uh, deals in the first place. And yeah, that's, I think that's so true. We're all praying that, you know, things can get better, but uh, if you don't, and people don't see a way forward, they, they just don't. So, you know, then people are more prey to wishful thinking or denial. The denial is somewhat as strong. It's getting less because it's more starkly evident uh, the nature of of things and the nature of the direction we're going in. But uh, yeah, it's, it's and all of these things. It's not only being bombarded with the dominant uh, nonsense all the time, but even the avenues of thinking. Like take TED talks. I'm not going to be invited to do a TED talk anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> These people are in love with technology. They're they're almost as bad as the transhumanists who who really worship it, who are really insane. I don't even know how you separate the two because it's just, you know, it's to me it's so unhealthy and so unworkable. But it's easy to throw around these terms. It's it's obvious, you know sustainable and renewable and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I do think it's getting less and less tenable. Uh, fewer people believe that shit. It's just, it's not, it really is, uh, it doesn't hold water. It just doesn't. More and more technology, things are getting worse. Okay, things are getting worse. There's no, it's sad, and I've, I really wish it was different, but, you know, this is just a horrible situation, and it's, We've got to pick up the beat. I mean, there's got to be more people willing to think more deeply and and demand something else, demand some actual content to what passes for politics. It's just scandal. It's almost unbelievable. Like, this is just a, a completely pretend world. You know, I mean, because these deep-seated things are, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's driving the whole thing. It started with domestication and the next leap forward as you referred to, is, is industrialization 200 plus years ago. Global warming started with industrialization. You can read that anywhere. Everybody knows that. But, uh, the more factories there are, the more uh, tenths of a percent uh, the thing goes up. And, you know, in, and yet, uh, well, or, you know, but we've got 7 billion people. We can't just turn our back on them. Well, I always say, why are there 7 billion people? Why did that happen? What is the unnatural population growth all about? It, did, it didn't happen for two million years. But now we see what, what uh, is making that happen. So if you ignore that, it's just suicide. And you're part of the suicide. Don't be blaming us. We're not talking about 7 billion people. And we're trying to change that. So there's a chance for people. For the, there could be a different way to go or different ways to go. Off this, off this path, this uh, lemming-like deal. It's uh, made to order. It's just made to be that way. That you shut off. Uh, uh, but as I said, I'll say it again. I, I do think there are cracks in the armor. There, there are. They're beginning anyway to be uh, something of a demand for more exploration to raise the questions that challenge the uh, the the you know the overriding uh, thing that still is in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> you know, and I think, though, when you talk about this crack in the narrative or the armor, um, I think, though, that, that it could go a couple of different ways. Um, I think because people have lost their faith in 
we can call it liberal democracy or we can call it civilization more broadly, but there's a lot of be, there's a lot of openings I think for people to move in different directions. I think <clears throat> I think there is a real danger that because people are seeking meaning in this time where meaning is you know hard to come by, I think uh, they're going to look to to maybe more authoritarian or or more fascistic uh, ideologies um, that that seems to happen in these these times. I mean, when you know we can look we can look through history, we can look to Nazi Germany, of course, and see what led to the rise of the Nazi Party or or fascism that's risen in other countries um, in the past you know not even century ago. Um, we could see that. It could go a couple different ways. Like I, 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 I really love researching the Spanish Civil War. I mean, that was a conflict between Spanish an- anarchists and other socialists um, against fascists, and the the anarchists lost for various reasons. Um, but there is, I think, when a society begins to fall apart, people can take up the story, right? There's a certain narrative that people can pitch. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to say that we are a narrative species, that we're a storytelling species. I think that's just accepting our nature, and that's what makes us kind of special in a certain way. But it's also a dangerous thing, especially when you have something like mass society, because you can have literally millions of people swayed by a very persuasive, charismatic uh, political ideology and a political figure, and can be led down a path towards even, I mean, it's something that's absolutely, truly horrifying. Um, but then again, on the other end of that, people can be led to more ideas like what you're pitching, which is like, we need to get to the root of this problem. And it, and it it's not something that a, you know, a, a fascistic ideology is going to be able to fix, you know? <clears throat> um, yeah. Yeah. Is it, uh, cause I think you're right there. We've seen the, the horrors of, uh, people falling for some version of this, some, I mean, you know, the Nazi thing was uh, really all about community. That's how they peddled it. Mm-hmm. The full, you know, it's first it was completely ersatz and and just horrific in so many ways. But uh, that's that was the appeal. And it, I think uh, one thing that uh, I've come to so- somewhat recently is that I think this primitivist thing is in part and maybe a very big part a spiritual thing. And the we were talking about the nostalgia. You brought that up. The uh, how this Hesiod, the Golden Age, or or these different uh, perfect states or somewhat perfect states heretofore that we've lost. Well, there, there. That's that's a fact. There's a reason for that nostalgia. There's a there's a yearning, a, a desire for wholeness, for connection, connection with each other, connection with the earth, and. Uh, so I be able to sort out the the bogus uh, versions that are just really based on oppressive stuff from from other ones, you know, that aren't that that are more authentic and really do connect with something that actually worked for you know band society. That's upwards of three million years ago. I mean, you don't have to say it was absolutely perfect. There's a in fact, there's a great deal about it. We'll never know in terms of consciousness and so forth, but there's a lot we do know. And that, I mean, when I discovered anthropology by accident in the eighties, it not only changed my thinking, but it's just, it's just such a source of stuff and uh, the indigenous experience and not just millions of years ago, but right now, 
you know, this is what the these leftists and rightists both uh, show no respect for. They're, they're not learning anything. They're, they're not even, they just, it's not even pertinent at all, but, but I think it really is. Right, like if you're going to discuss um, anarchism, right, this idea of, of a non-hierarchical uh, form of social organization, um, we can look, like you said, I mean, it's really amazing because we can really just look to anthropology and we can look to to people that actually still exist on this planet right now, um, still, that are, are living as, as closely as they can. It's really difficult when you come up against a global civilization like ours. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, there are people still that are demonstrating what it is to live in that way. Um, and that is, that is, I think, really important because if we have alternatives available to us that we can observe and we can see, that it makes it a little easier for us to imagine what it would be like to to move back into that that state, into that place again. Um, I think that that's really valuable and important. And, and you know, I, I've I love coming at this uh, this anthropology perspective um, because more and more I've come to recognize that some of the things that we take for granted to be attributed to genetics right? Things that we think like medical issues and diseases and problems that we've just attributed to, oh, well, that's just always the way it's been. And we need modern medical technology uh, to deal with these diseases and these illnesses that we have, these genetic disorders that we have. Um, An example being, um, I was thinking about this the the other day, because I have a friend who she is, uh, I think she works in dentistry or orthodontics, but she works with teeth. And we were discussing how she's had these really disgusting stories of, of working with people who don't know how to take care of their teeth. And she says a lot of it is genetics. That's what she kept on saying. Like, people have bad teeth because of genetics. And and then someone said, well, what, did, what do they do? What did people do before we had modern dentistry or, or orthodontics or, or me, you know, modern medicine? She's like, well, their teeth would just rot out, you know. <laughs> and and I and I remembered I had an interview last year with a, a gentleman named um, Peter Unger, and he's a paleo paleoanthropologist, and he lived with one of the I believe it's the one of the last hunter gatherer tribes in Tanzania I, I believe um, in Africa, and he was observing how their jaws developed and how their teeth developed, and he saw that these adults in this tribe they had jaws that were big enough to accommodate for all their wisdom teeth. They had no issues with any impact in molars or anything like that from the, the growth of their wisdom teeth. They didn't have any teeth rot out. They had really healthy teeth. And he said that a lot of it was just based on their diet. The fact that they had their kids eating, the, the children would eat a lot more diverse foods and they they got more nutrition. And, and they also, they, they um, what happens if you eat harder food more difficult food as a child, your jaw um, will grow and accommodate for all the other teeth that needs to grow in your mouth. You need that stimulation from food, um, from harder substances in order for that to be the, the case. So really a lot of these problems that I have, for instance, with my jaw, I've had 12 teeth pulled in my life, you know, I've had braces, I've had a lot of issues with my teeth. And to kind of understand that, oh, the problem wasn't that I just have j- bad genetics, this is actually civilization. You know, this is, this is yeah. the modern diet and the modern way of thinking about how we treat and raise children. Um, and it, oh man, I'm sorry. That, that was just a really fascinating thing. But over and over again, I find clues like 
things that we take for granted, kind of like in the beginning when we're talking about time and the, ubiqu- the ubiquity of time in our lives, that it doesn't actually have to be this way. This is actually a really modern, more recent thing. And in trying to get that through people's heads, then understand that the majority of our experience on this planet has been it could, very different from what we think it has been. You know, the sort of stereotypical caveman thing, you know, that's just nonsense. Um, anyway, yeah. yeah. The comic book stuff, it still obtains, you know, if uh, because not everybody knows much about anthropology. And like I said, I just stumbled across it and got into it. But yeah, a lot of these things, the tea thing, it's, I've, I've read that uh, that was an invention of domestication. Cavities, what we call, uh, well, dental caries, you know, cavities, bad teeth, uh, didn't exist before. And we ac- actually know that degenerative diseases and infectious diseases were virtually unknown before agriculture. I mean, that's gigantic. I mean, think of how chronic those conditions are now, just absolutely chronic. And another one besides the teeth is now uh, cesarean surgery for childbirth is more and more and more the the thing that the women have to do. You know that goes back to Genesis, right? Uh, by the sweat of your brow, you will toil for your bread, and you will, you will suffer in childbirth. Well, that's that's like literally true. That's the uh, you know that's the metaphorical description of of the coming of agriculture of the coming of domestication it's just there it is there's no the fall it's, it was the fall into domestication and all its side effects and now we live with all these chronic conditions people can we can all be kept alive longer but in this sometimes a miserable state and by the way the thing about well yeah that's okay maybe you're right but Everyone is dead by 20 or 30. Well, that's not true. That's just another thing that just is carried around. We do know that infant mortality was higher, and that in, there's a way to bring down the average death age if, you've, you know, if you put that in. But if people who survived infancy, they lived as long as we did, as we do. You know, that's pretty much true. There's, but people repeat these things. I wouldn't know dif- differently if I hadn't you know, gotten into that stuff. Yeah, there's still this myth that, you know, we need civilization. We won't live the healthy, long lives that we have today um, without it. And But it's really true. I mean, we're held hostage in a real way. You know, it's because here we are. No matter what our ideas are, we're still part of the deal. We're still, you know, like everybody else. I mean, I had to have uh, prostate surgery and... Uh, uh, anyway, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck here at the moment. I mean, you can't, you don't get to transcend it just because you have ideas that are uh, contrary to the the main thrust of things. So yeah, I guess that's an obvious point. Yeah, you know, there's that really dumb argument that people make. If, for instance, if I just remember uh, back in 2011, there was the whole Occupy wall street movement i just remember that because this is what triggered it there were people that were criticizing the protesters these sort of you know leftists that were in camp you know creating these encampments uh to sort of protest the sort of economic uh you know the the one percent or whatever right and uh they're you know they're using computers they're using cell phones they're documenting it they're writing about it on social media they're using the technologies that are made by or you know 
sold to us by corporations. Um, and people are like, you know, how can you criticize capitalism if you're using uh, technologies that come from capitalism? And I, and I just thought that's like the dumbest argument I've ever heard. I mean, you don't choose to be born in the time and place that you're in. You know, in it's like it's like the people that say you're born in the United States and you can't criticize the United States. Um, you know that that really they just want to shut down any sort of argument against the status. Yeah, they don't quo. Ever apply it to themselves. I mean, in the case of uh, of leftists, we could say, "Well, you're against uh, landlords and rent." How come you're paying rent? You're a hypocrite. <laughs> I mean, there's no more freedom there. I remember, you know, way back, I remember in the early 80s when the PC thing burst out and then it wasn't too, then, well, cell, uh, cell phones and iPhones later, of course. But, uh, you know, people used to say to us, a few friends of mine, we, we made, some, you know, some critiques, made some posters and whatnot. And a very common response was, well, if you don't like this stuff, then don't buy one. Don't buy a PC. Why are you complaining about it? As if it's a purely free choice. You know, and I've got a radio show and it streams and you know, I have I have a website, I, I have I do email. I don't like to have to do it, but but what choice do you have? The sort of that sort of argument is always a bit frustrating. Um But yeah, you know, you you, you it's like, like for, for instance, I remember I've had a few jobs where, you know, you have to make money to live in this, this place, this world. Um, and I, I know you have to have a smartphone in order to do certain things with a lot of, a lot of jobs now require that you have smartphones um, because there's like group chats, right? Like you have to be a part of a group thing or you get emails or you have to constantly be able to know about what's going on, right? Like they'll post schedules or whatever. And if you're not tuned into that, you're missing out on, you know, you could get fired basically because you just don't know what you're supposed to know. You know, as as new technologies come into societies like the smartphone, they become ubiquitous and everybody just sort of assumes that you have one. And mm-hmm. then they, they sort of make it mandatory at a certain point. Oh, yeah. So for... Well, getting back to time and the clock again, right? Yeah. You're clock all the time you have to be reached reachable at all times i mean it's the the control you know you're more and more uh, tied into the whole thing yeah yeah it's uh it's really hard to know what to do um you know i i, I think about these moments that you have you've mentioned in your writing and thinking about time but but a, a moment in history that really fascinates me is the the luddites and their you know, they, they've been attributed, of course, as being anti-technology, but they, they were people who were resisting the sort of rise of, an, uh, from what I can understand, the rise of the factory and that, that kind of industrialized culture that was emerging out of that. <clears throat> what, what is your understanding of what the Luddites were, like your fascination with them and, and, and kind of like what the, the, the historical and cultural conditions that sort of led to that uprising? Well, it's, it was uh, an attempt to resist a further step of domestication, I think is one way to put it, because, and, you know, the Luddites, the main component there were the handloom weavers, right? And people largely working at home, the family loom and, and so forth, very, uh, very scattered. They weren't, they had not been herded into uh, factory building and, and worked uh, 14 hours a day. They, they set their own hours. And 
you know, were pretty much given to riot pretty darn often across the English countryside. And in a very Foucaultian sense, how do you control these people? How do you impose the discipline necessary to keep society together, really? And, you know, and Marx got it entirely wrong, 100% wrong. He thought you heard all these people in the factory, then you unify the proletariat, then they're this powerful revolutionary force. Well, it's exactly the opposite. They're drained of their time and energy. And uh, when they were, and the, the handloom weavers, I, I found this, as you have, a fascinating deal. And the handloom weavers carried on, some of them anyway, for decades and had to be virtually starved to death before they would go into the factory. It, a long, drawn out struggle. Of course, most of it was the three Luddite risings between 1800 and 1819. Amazingly inspiring stuff. And, uh, you know, they knew what they were up against. They didn't want to give away that autonomy, that freedom. And it was a, it was a hell of a battle. You know, they had at one point, as you probably know, they had more, the, the Brits had more troops in the countryside than they had fighting Napoleon. I mean, you know, it was just a big challenge. They were, you know, hanging people, sending them to Australia, and uh, it was, the battle went on, and joined by all these other people who weren't handloom weavers, but lots of other occupations joined in completely. They had a hell of a time putting it down because it enjoyed such huge support. And you know, I don't know how fully it was articulated. It was articulated by some, but it was felt on a very deep level what the stakes were and why that struggle was so protracted. And, uh, you know, it, it was really a battle. Mm -hmm. I just think what's remarkable about it is, is uh, I think because the process of domestication has been pretty thorough uh, up to the modern moment that we have entered into, but throughout time, people have noticed when there has been, and, and you know, I think that we're, I don't know if it's a flaw or not, but when it sort of happens incrementally, kind of like with the, the agricultural revolution, we don't really know what people were feeling or, or what their experience, you know, we can kind of ascertain their nutrition, you know, their nutritional intake. Like you can, you can look at the bones of people that existed during the agricultural revolution and see, oh, they're you know, they're malnourished, they were shorter, they lived shorter lives. We can see that they were probably a lot more miserable than their ancestors were, right? And we can even see that when tribal cultures become integrated into, I guess you could say, the the broader dominant culture of the, the planet right now. Um, you know, if it's, say, an Inuit tribe who, you know, starts to watch television or something, right? And you begin to see a dramatic change in their dietary habits and their lives. Um, you could see that in the modern times as well, but <clears throat> but you could see throughout human history that when there's been a pretty big jump where you see like within the rise of industrial capitalism, uh, when factories were being built in England and people were seeing a really dramatic shift. And there's a lot of things that lead up to that. I mean, there was the the the, the enclosures in which the the commons were closed off from the the poor and the peasants. Um, that led to the displacement of these people, and then the factories emerged, and you know all of this sort of progressed over time. But, but I, yeah, but the I, closure over centuries, many centuries. Yeah, that's what went on. Yeah, and and I think that people have been resisting these changes for a very long time, and I think we should take some sort of 
lesson from that? You know, why, why, why are we not resisting? You know, what is happening now to distract us? I think that's why the machine more than ever needs to be destroyed, because it's becoming increasingly more efficient at distracting us away from the core problem, right? Like, I think like Trump, Trump is a really good uh, distraction because he is a he's a con artist and I think he's he's very good at what he's doing, but people think he's an idiot. But what he's really doing very well is he's distracting people with all these really dumb controversies while there's people behind the scenes that are making life worse for pretty much everybody. Wow, well put, man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that was probably the case with maybe the rise of industrial capitalism, um, except people didn't have the sophisticated propaganda and digital technologies to kind of distract us away from the underlying changes in their societies. Like once they saw that their way of life was being destroyed, they were like, no, fuck that. We're going to resist that. You know, we're going to go full force against that. People don't do that as much anymore. And well, I think we're due for something. I wouldn't be surprised that that's not far off because, uh, it, it renews itself. You know, the, we do, we're not seeing a whole lot of it at this moment. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, people aren't happy. You know, primitivism wouldn't get anywhere. We would not get anywhere discussing these things uh, if if people were quite happy and pleased and not uh, not on drugs. Not in such a sorry state. I mean, that's just that's the nature of it. That's that's more important even than the ideology. How what kind of a life you're having and what uh, what kind of strains. I mean, you look at all these things about anxiety and depression. I mean, it's just staggering how how sad, really how bereft the whole modern society has become. And that's, in a weird way, that's the silver lining, it seems to me, because that's the, that's the kindle right there for, for overturning it because we're not happy. There's no way around that. But you know, it's always it's always. I was thinking about this today for some reason. I, I don't know why. It's been a long time since I read it. But have you ever run across a novel called Ridley Walker? I have not. No. Well, it's just in a nutshell. It's about these people, and I think it's. I can't remember now exactly, but maybe 500 years from now, if one assumes there'll even be a livable biosphere, <laughs> anything like that. But anyway, these people they discover buried. Uh, a plane this is you know post-apocalypse to use that term and this this group this society uh they don't have technology that's all gone but the whole spine of the of the novel the whole issue is that part of the people find this metal thing and they then they realize this was this flew this actually was like this metal bird that flew and so some people uh, want to set to work creating the kind of society that can have something like that. And the other part of, of the group of whatever society was says, no, look at, look at the disaster that came along with this. You want to repeat that? So that's the struggle, you know, and it, and it kind of plays out, but, but maybe that's the other part of the thing. If you see the, the story you don't want to repeat it. I mean, because one question that sometimes comes up, which I think is kind of interesting, people say, or some persons have said, well, so if all this goes away, 
wouldn't people just recreate it? They just build it right back up again? Well, they might, like those people wanted to do. But isn't it more reasonable to assume why would they want to recreate disasters and go down this path toward ruin in, in so many respects, if not every respect? That's Why would you do that? Right. I was thinking about when you said that, I, I wish I could remember more of the details of this. I wish I had delved more deeply into this, but I think it was here in the uh, the Americas, and uh, I think it was in Northern America, but there was a a complex society emerged, um, and I, I wish I could remember where it was at, but it was a complex society, so, it, you know, however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people started to populate this region, and, and of course, as we understand complex societies and when civilizations arise, you create massive inequality, you know, resources are exploited, and, you know, all of these things happen, and I think they reach the point of collapse, and what happened is, I think what happened is that all of these structures that they had built, they just walked away. They just left it behind because everybody realized like, oh, we went down a path that didn't work. You know, this is, it, it, it almost killed us off and it destroyed so much in our path. And, and I mean, you can kind of just look at the uh, remnants. You can't really understand for sure what they were deciding. You know, you can't get in their head, but you can kind of look at the, the trace evidence and realize like, oh, they actually just walked away from this thing. Exactly. Yeah, they left it all behind. Yeah, that could happen again. Yeah. You know, and, uh, if we try to turn the corner, there's so many parts to the challenge, but that would be something like that, I suppose. You know, you've got to uh, stop uh, fueling uh, what's what's killing everything. You just you just have to. So or so we would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'd like to see. Yeah. There's a. Uh... And I think that this is the thing is is because of the nature of the discussion that we're having um, regarding, you know, moving back into a more holistic state. I guess I, I would I would frame it. Um, you know, there really isn't really um, from what I can understand. There's really no map. You know, there's no there's no guide. There's no real obvious way to get there. And I think that's what's. Um, well, yeah, that's Scary. true. That's yeah. uh, that's uh, an enormous uh, thing. I mean, when you start to break it down a little bit, but but at least there may be more people that that want to get there, and if people want to get there, there'll be a way to get there. I believe, you know, even though. But that's the thing. It's it's just. A, I think it's basically a matter of, do people want to get there? Is it uh, sorry enough to to go somewhere else to do something else? Uh, or, I mean, it's conceivable. People just get even more drugged out and, and more afraid and defensive and denial. That's not inconceivable. I'm not saying there's any guaranteed uh, rosy future. Of course not. But so that's what it comes down to. Uh, you know, because the, the whole, really the whole ideological stuff is in tatters, whether it's the more political part or the more, uh, technological part, which is its own ideology, in my opinion, uh, it, it just really doesn't hold water. It just does not. It's easy to to expose it and to just destroy these claims. You know, technology is supposed to empower us. We've never been more disempowered. It's supposed to connect us. We've never been so isolated from each other. That's just 
how could it be clearer? There's, there's a billion studies on the thing. I mean, you know, it's just not true. Or variety, we got all this cornucopia of all kinds of diversity. Well, we live in the most standardized society that it's ever existed. What, what, uh, you know, where's the, uh, where's the free diversity there? We're just, you know, we're channeled into this technology at a faster pace. Everybody's working more and more all the time. I mean, if civilization is, is one thing besides chronic war, it's also more work, always more work. It's amazing. How could it be? Doesn't technology free us? You know, and, and didn't the revolution, say the French Revolution, for example, well, it did away with feudalism, but, you know, there are all these holy days, all these church holidays, you know, hundreds of them, not, not just 10 holidays, official, you know, take off work days a year. And they did away with all that in the name of, you know, opposing religion. But they were just creating more work in the modern world is more work. Right. No, that's, that's absolutely work. true. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's hard to even explain that, but there it is. I mean, empirically it's, that's the case. That's the, uh, that's the picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's only gotten worse. And, um, and I think exploring, you know, and, and I think what it is, is it's like, I, I've become really fascinated with an understanding that human beings used to know how to live on the land that they live on. And now they don't, you know, why is that the case? You know, that's so strange. Like I, I, I've, I, I want to interview this guy. His name is Bill Gamage and he had written a book called um, the greatest estate on earth. And he's an Australian who wrote about how the Aboriginal populations uh, had lived in kind of a really beautiful way with the land. They had made Australia the the continent. They 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 definitely used their human ability to manipulate their environments, um, like we see now, of course, with human civilization. But they were much more mindful, and they used controlled fires to to sort of control the landscape a little bit. But it, it enhanced biodiversity, um, and you know, as soon as the Europeans moved in, the entire continent, all, Australia is in the, one of the worst droughts ever right now. They have massive wildfires every year. Um, and same thing here in North America. You know, the indigenous people of North America knew how to live here. And as soon as colonizers came in and started imposing their way of life that they probably learned in Europe and imposed it here or in Australia or wherever that's when we started seeing these massive wildfires emerge because we just don't know how to live here. We don't know how to live on this land. And I think that that part of this discussion of like how to get back to where we were, we can't reverse time. You know, we can't go back to this original condition. I think that's delusional, but I do think we can understand how do we even begin to learn to live where we are in the places that we are and how do we begin to build communities again so that we feel connected to each other and we, you know, can can work together to understand these things. I think there's a lot of different people on the, around the world right now that are thinking about these subjects. And, you know, you're, of course, one of them, and you're coming at it through a very deep critique of things like, you know, civilization. But by starting there and by getting into that, you can then begin to analyze, you know, how did we get to this moment and how did things get so crazy and what can we do to take steps back into a direction where we feel less crazy, I guess you could say, you know, less neurotic, more connected, more integrated into, you know, a loving community. 
um, and and feel like you're you know actually a part of the place that you are in and not separated from it like we are now. Oh, that's yeah, that's primary. That that's very uh, that's very well put. It's respect for the earth. Not it's not an object. It's reconnecting with with the land. I mean, it's it's that it's literally that you know, and that's why I have so much respect for people that are trying to do that explicitly. You know, they're on the land. They're they're trying to recover skills that we've lost. They're trying to. Uh, understand well what hunter gatherers knew how how do you how do you get an intimate understanding of where you are what other forms of life are there and how to connect with that how to communicate with that you know it's that it was there and you know we lose our sensual acuity we we lose skills we lose we lose so much and there's always a technological prosthesis in one way or another that that you know, bounces up and says, oh, this is better. Well, no, I, you know, I think you'd agree we're being impoverished. We're not, this is not a step forward. So ways, it's just, uh, it's very frightening that uh, the way things are going. But, uh, but I do think there's, I'm, I'm still rather hopeful uh, that, that, that there will be, there will be a refusal. There, there will be a, a rebirth somehow. Because th- there's such a an amazingly rich, uh, almost endless uh, history. Well, prehistory is what it is, but you know, thousands of generations, thousands and thousands of generations. This whole madness is, you know, so recent, relatively speaking. And of course, as you know, that's where the anthropology comes in to to give us a hand. Because uh, you, you would say somebody might say, or in a different situation, a different history of this planet. Well, that's just pure fantasy. That's people never lived that way. Well, actually, we lived that way for ninety nine point nine percent of the time of Homo species, starting with Homo erectus, and you know, over two million years ago. That's the real history, and you know, that's what Rousseau was getting at. I don't know how much anthropology actually knew, but you know, that's I would say that's closer to our true self. That kind of uh, connection, or that kind of orientation i don't know if you call it human nature or what but you know this this latest thing is just a a very bad failed experience uh, experiment that uh is uh, just really very very slight in its in its uh length of time you know it's really nothing compared to the rest of the the actual time we've had here on this planet yeah i think so i think it it, it is i mean in <clears throat> and I can imagine that that memory, you know, we talk about this this fall and the stories that we've had of, of this sort of Eden, this place that we existed in prior to the rise of, of civilization and work and all of that. You know, that memory is still there. And I think that it may come off as very romantic and it may it may present itself as as a romantic or mythic thing. But there's something, there's a kernel of truth in all of that. If you kind of take maybe some of the elements away from it that, that are guarding it, the very root of it, at the very center of that, that, that myth or that story is this memory that things weren't always like this. And that, you know, because I think when you grow up, and I, I know like almost every child has this experience of going to school and feeling like, this is really weird. Like, why am I here? 
why does that just something just doesn't feel right you know we're not supposed to learn in this way you know we're standardized education is is a dismal failure uh when it comes to actually educating people all it is there to do of course is as we discussed with time and you know the rise of industrialization you know schooling is used to of course get people ready to go to work right it's about getting you indoctrinated in that way of thinking and feeling and doing um but i think that children have that that sense more than anyone else that something's a little off here you know and and i think that that's just a memory that's sort of our our ancestral memory that's sort of shining through all of it and i think you know as adults i think we have these glimpses in these moments where it could be in the midst of a personal crisis or it could be or it could be in the moments of quiet where we're deeply thinking about the subject or it could be during like a psychedelic trip or it could be you know it could be anything it could be a moment of epiphany and you realize like where 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 are we like what is this this is such an alien thing that we're a part of um i don't know if you're familiar with uh this this author but um chris ryan he had co-written a book with his wife called Sex at Dawn. And it's a really excellent book. And it actually was one of the first things that I had read that allowed me to really understand that, um, that you know, civilization is not something that is actually here for our benefit. And that many of the things that come out of that, including sexual yeah, ideas yeah. like monogamy and, and marriage and things like that, you know, that that doesn't really serve our our instincts or our or sort of evolutionary sense when it comes to our, our sexuality but you know in a bigger sense that ties to our humanness and and the lie that civilization has presented to us and i think he's coming out with a new book i don't know when it's coming out but it's about in his and he's described this in his own podcast and i think this is super fascinating this idea that civilization is like this alien intelligence and it's coordinating human behavior and activity using technology in order to further its own aims. Um, and human beings are kind of caught up in the mechanisms of these of this intelligence. But, you know, I don't think you can literally say it's an, intel- an alien intelligence, but it's definitely not human. Something very subtle has happened where we have been hijacked and, we're, and our energies and our, our bodies are being used to prop up something. That isn't serving human interests or human needs at all. Um, oh, that's for sure. Yeah. It's a totality, and, and uh, the alternatives have been removed. And such as, and I think you said this or implied this. There's only one civilization, and it's everywhere. It's technology and capital, and uh, almost nothing outside of it. It's just that's, and that makes the reply or the necessary response to it as uh sweeping you you might say i mean there's there's no you can't go somewhere else uh there's nowhere to go and and in so many ways that's true right and so you've got to come up with something at at a deep enough level to to match that to to get outside of it and and have something different to, to be able to to be permitted to have it you know if we can figure out some you know, uh, project, uh, back to the land kind of thing and, and, uh, go do that. Well, we wouldn't need to transform all of society. That would be the answer in itself, except for one thing, we're not permitted to do that. You know, who, who has the capital to really do that and who has 
who is able to just somehow transcend the whole force field of civilization, which is which is so widespread and so deep. There's there's really you can't escape. You know, it's so it has to be confronted. It has to you have to contend with it and and do something about it. Get rid of it. That involves so much, and to me, that's a that's an actual physical, practical problem. You know, it's not just let's think differently. That doesn't do any good. You can think differently, but are you going to act on that? Are we going to figure out resistance? Are we going to figure out real ways to go? Otherwise, you know, it's just kind of an interesting academic thing. But it's you know, obviously, it's got more. It must be more than that. I think it's pretty clear to say. Yes, I think so. Well, John, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half, and I don't want to... Yeah, I I think we've had a really good conversation. It's been... I feel like it meandered a lot, but I like that, because I think this subject, it it just, there's so many... It's like tree roots, you know? You can go in so many different directions, and so there's so many elements that we've touched on in this conversation. Oh, yeah, I've had a great time, Patrick. Yeah. Uh, Appreciate your inviting me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And I just want to say before before we uh, end this episode, um, you have your website, johnzerzan.net. Um, everything I think everybody would want to know about your work can be found on that website. Um, you know, what, what I wanted to kind of get to, uh, we did discuss this at the beginning, but your book, Time and Time Again, um, excellent essays in that volume it's it's small but it has such concise and and uh i think really excellent writing on the subject of time and i appreciate it that's where we started talking about time yeah at the, at the onset huh? yeah i was like i have all these questions and then we're gonna sort of talk about time but you know as as always i i feel like it ties into so many other things and you know it's it's not always easy to just stick with just time you know time is one of many subjects that we could discuss and we did um, also, this year you had another book released, uh, "A People's History of Civilization." So I will um, in the description. Thank you for the plug, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, and, yeah. In the description of this episode, I'll, I'll put those down there, and people can find your work through that. Much appreciated. You take care, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it. I'm a liar.